0: Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Episode 92, The Hungarian Revolution. Well, I'm happy to say that I'm able to do today's podcast. Uh, This past week, I had a uh, surgery done on my Achilles tendon for a tear and some bone spurs. Uh, The only problem was uh, they put me under general anesthetics and they had to put a trachea tube down my throat which really made it awfully scratchy for uh, quite a while until today, where I woke up and for the first time I actually had my full voice back. Uh, Hopefully it doesn't break during this podcast, but I think we're good to go. So let's get at it. Last time, we recounted Nikita Sergeyevich Khrushchev's rise to Stalin's inner circle, presaging his eventual ascension to the position of sole ruler of the Soviet Union. Now let's leap forward to the year 1955 and the speech that would shake the communist world, the so-called secret speech given at the 20th Party Congress in Moscow, condemning Joseph Stalin's 30 years of rule over the USSR. Now, many historians look back at the speech and view it as the bravest moment in Khrushchev's life. While this is certainly true, The ramifications of it would cause major crises to occur throughout the communist world that were definitely not foreseen by those who put the speech together, and certainly not by the man who gave the speech. It would also show the vulnerability and weakness of the men that Stalin had left to run the country. Many historians also point to the speech as the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union and the grip of the communist party on the country. So, how was the speech put together? Well, first off, Khrushchev had begun to slowly release some of the political prisoners held in the gulags and began to talk to them, especially those he knew from his past. Many believe that he did this to begin the atonement for his own complicity in the purges, and he also wanted to begin to free his friends. One of the first he approached was Alexei Snegov from his Ukrainian days. Now, secondly, Khrushchev claims that he was the shoemaker Pinya, from his favorite story, which I recounted last episode, and that this was his inspiration for being the one to deliver the speech. The more research I did into Nikita Sergeyevich's personality, the more I believe his story, although not entirely. As he put it in his memoirs, quote, There were these political prisoners in jail under tsarism. Socialist revolutionaries, Mensheviks, and Bolsheviks. Among them was an old shoemaker named Pinya. That's what I did at the 20th Congress. Since I was chosen to be first secretary, I had to. Like the shoemaker Pinya, I was obliged to tell the truth about the past, whatever the risks to me. The effect of the secret speech, as Taubman puts it in his book on Khrushchev, quote, Khrushchev's speech denouncing Stalin was the bravest and most reckless thing he ever did. Before he spoke, Malenkov and Molotov seemed defeated. Just to make sure, he had stacked the Congress with his supporters and strengthened his position in the Central Committee. He was now first among supposed equals, perfectly positioned eventually to expel his rivals from the party. Instead. His rivals came close to removing him. Fifteen months after the secret speech, a majority of Presidium colleagues voted to oust him as party leader. Under the rules of the game, as played until then, the Presidium decides, the Central Committee rubber stamps, Khrushchev should have been finished. But with his back to the wall, he triumphed in a marathon 11-day showdown. So dramatic was the duel So decisive seemed the victory that the main point seems to be the way that he won. In fact, the real question is how we almost managed to lose. Most of the upper echelon, if not all, were complicit in the crimes of the Stalinist era and were concerned that those who returned from the Gulags would seek revenge. But in their hearts and minds... They knew they had to break the Stalinist system, lest another monster would be unleashed and their heads would be on the chopping block. But how to proceed was the preeminent question. Khrushchev felt this way about the situation in late 1955. I had mourned for Stalin as the only real force for our solidarity. Of course doubts had crept into my mind, as they would into any man's. But Stalin, this was Stalin. I had no idea that this man was capable, in principle, of consciously abusing his power. If we were alive now, and we were voting on the question of his responsibility, I'd favor bringing him to trial. We ourselves were constrained by our activities under Stalin's leadership. We couldn't free ourselves from his pressure, even after he died. Couldn't imagine that all the executions were pure crimes. We had no right not to know. We were told not to stick our noses into things. There are different degrees of responsibility. As for me, I'm prepared to bear my share of responsibility. Even in the life of people who have committed crimes, there comes a moment when they can't admit it, and when they do so, It will bring leniency, if not exculpation. I've always stood and stand now for veracity, for absolute veracity before the party. Even after the Beria trial, we gave the party and the people incorrect explanations. We did everything to shield Stalin, although we were shielding a criminal, a murderer. I first felt the falseness of that position, When we arrived in Yugoslavia, talked with Tito and the others. When we blamed Beria, they laughed and made ironic remarks. Khrushchev had by now begun to release political prisoners from the gulags and talked to some, many of whom he knew personally, and again going back, especially Alexei Snegov from his Ukraine days. Mikoyan felt that he was the one who called on Khrushchev to tell the 20th Congress of the crimes of Stalin. Quote, "There has to be a report on what had happened, if not to the party as a whole, then to delegates to the first congress after Stalin's death. If we don't do it at this congress and someone else does, it's some time before the next congress, then everyone would have a legal right to hold us fully responsible." for the crimes that had occurred. Snegov, according to Khrushchev's son, Sergei, was the first to suggest that Nikita tell the full story. Either you tell them at the upcoming Congress or you'll find yourself under investigation. Now, whoever made the recommendation, that's moot. Khrushchev proposed that a commission be convened to review any crimes that may have occurred. Of course, the two men, aside from Stalin and Beria, most complicit, Molotov and Kaganovich, objected. Brilliantly, Khrushchev appointed Pyotr Pospilov, a very pro-Stalinist, to head the commission. Nikita defended this choice, quote, because this would create a sense of confidence. Also, Pospilov was kind of noted for his very long-winded but very detailed reports. NKVD deputy Boris Rodos was called before the commission, a man who had personally tortured many victims for their confessions for crimes they did not commit, crimes that most of the time never occurred. He told them that he not only was ordered to do it by Beria, the person no one objected to blaming for the murderous purges, but from Stalin himself. The following comments came from members of the commission. Will we have the courage to tell the truth? questioned Khrushchev. Sabarov responded by saying, If these are the facts, can we really call this communism? This is unforgivable. Mikoyan recalled that the facts are so horrifying that in certain very difficult passages, Pospilov's voice shook, and once he broke down and sobbed. Khrushchev said, Stalin's bankruptcy as a leader is revealed. What sort of leader is it who destroys everyone? We've got to have the courage to tell the truth. Molotov responded Stalin was Lenin's great successor. The party lived and worked under Stalin's leadership for 30 years industrializing the country, gaining victory in the war, and emerging from it as a great power. Kaganovich countered, You can't deceive history. Facts can't be thrown out. Khrushchev's proposal for a report is correct. We bear responsibility, but the situation was such that we couldn't object. But he also warned that they don't unleash anarchy. After numerous rewrites and edits, the speech was ready on February twenty fifth, 1956. And if you haven't heard it, go back and listen to the episode where I read, you know, a good chunk of the speech. Now, I didn't read the whole one. It's four hours. And frankly, it would have been like putting a trachea tube down my throat again. And I don't think it would have gotten through the full four hours. But I think it's a really good listen to, and you might even want to listen to it again if you've heard the episode before. Now, after the speech, Nikita's son Sergei remembers how he felt. Quote, He returned home dead tired, but extremely pleased, simply beaming. To be the one delivering the general report to a Congress was the highest honor imaginable. Khrushchev had begun to solidify his grip on power adding allies to the presidium and secretariat, like Leonid Brezhnev and Ekaterina Fortseva, The old guard resented his newfound power, which they tried to destroy during the period following the speech, which produced unforeseen consequences and which didn't really remain secret very long. As Sergei recalls, I very much doubt father wanted to keep it secret. On the contrary, His own words provide confirmation of the opposite, that he wanted to bring his report to the people. Otherwise, all his efforts would have been meaningless. The secrecy of the sessions was only a formal concession on his part. Within weeks, over 25 million party and Komsomol members read or heard about the speech. Not only that, The common workers and even high school students knew about it. By April, the CIA received a copy given to them by the Israeli secret police, the Mossad. By late May, the New York Times was given a copy, which they published on June 4, 1956. The whole world now knew about the so-called secret speech. And already, Khrushchev began to realize that his attack on Stalin was a bit too brutal. As friend Alexei Adjubai recalled, Khrushchev sensed the blow had been too powerful. For the time being, he continued denouncing Stalin's tyranny, disclosing new facts about the bloody terror in speeches. But increasingly, he sought to limit the boundaries of critical analysis, lest it end up polarizing society now i get to mention another uh ruler future ruler of russia for the first time a young mikhail gorbachev reported the speech to a group in rural district in southern russia near the town of stavropol the people listened in disbelief and some in disgust gorbachev was somewhat surprised as he said and this, in a region that had gone through the bloody carnage of the terrible 1930s? But was it so surprising? This is something I have not read in any of the books that I've gone through on this period. But what we have to remember is, many who were left were the people who reported on their neighbors to protect themselves. Many in the countryside were just as complicit in many of the crimes against society as the members of the central committee and the presidium just on a smaller scale now i'm not indicting the soviet and russian people there were many who did not rat out their neighbors but many who did and those who were in the communist party owed their positions because of what they did to their fellow countrymen during the purges of the 30s So imagine now, the Stalinist regime is being pulled down and exposed, and those very people who did this were exposed as well. For the political prisoners, the speech was the key to their release. Before the speech, 7,000 were let free. Immediately afterward, several hundred thousand headed home. While his popularity with some of the Russian people increased, Khrushchev developed more and more enemies within the upper party crust. In the coming months, they had reason to go after Nikita Sergeyevich. In Poland, strikes began to break out after hearing of the speech, with the biggest one being in the city of Poznan. The Bread and Freedom Revolt, involved over 100,000 people, and was centered on the issues of food and freedom from the Stalinist government repression. And please, I am probably going to pronounce this man's name wrong. And it was the government led by Polish Prime Minister Józef Sierankiewicz. A spontaneous strike started at 6 a.m. at the multi-factory complex of the so-called Joseph Stalin Metal Industries, which grew as the morning went on. Workers at other plants, institutions, and students quickly joined the procession. So by noon, the crowd had swelled to over 100,000. The agitated crowd stormed the Communist Party headquarters, as well as some police stations. Local military garrisons were called up, but things remained somewhat peaceful until Soviet General Konstantin Roskovsky decided to take control of the situation. Rokovsky sent in his deputy, the Polish-Soviet General Stanislav Poplovsky, to put down the protest in a matter consistent with Russian standards, which meant by force. By the end of the next day, hundreds of protesters were captured and brutally tortured in prison. Estimates vary from 60 to 100 deaths and hundreds of injuries among the protesters. Whatever the short-term outcome, the seeds of discontent were sown and would grow exponentially in Hungary four months later. The Poles and Hungarians were bristling under the Soviet control of their countries post-World War II. While Poland's Communist Party tried to slow down the Stalinist purges from 1945 to 1953, Hungarian Communist leader Matthias Rakosi was a full-on Stalinist. He put on show trials and executed former leader Laszlo Rajic. So with the publishing of the secret speech, many in Hungary were itching to get back at the hardliners in the government. After Stalin's death, the leadership of the USSR persuaded Rakazi to install the more moderate communist, Imre Nagy, to become prime minister. When Malenkov was ousted in 1955, Rakowski ousted Nagy from the leadership and threw him out of the Communist Party. The tinderbox was dried and ready to explode. Khrushchev, for his part, tried to calm things down. He headed to Poland for the funeral of their leader, Boleslav Berut, who, interestingly, died of a heart attack after reading the secret speech while convalescing in a Moscow hospital after suffering from pneumonia. Berut was a staunch Stalinist, and he knew which direction the wind was blowing, so he knew his days were probably numbered. Khrushchev gave a long speech to the Polish communists at a meeting in March, which totally confused the attendees. He considered them his little pigeons, so to say, and failed to see that, he was doing nothing to calm their fears. He made the strain between the Kremlin and Warsaw grow even greater. By October, Khrushchev, along with Kaganovich, Molotov, Mikoyan, and Zhukov, headed to Warsaw to confront the Polish leader, Wladyslaw Gomulka. With the backing of fellow communists, he demanded that the Soviet army back off and that Soviet General Rakowski, be removed and sent back to Russia. Also, Gomulka swore that the Poles would not back away from the Soviet Union and communism, just let them take care of the situation internally. Grudgingly, Khrushchev and his associates agreed. This signal was not the one they really wanted to give, as the agreement was immediately seen by the Hungarians as a match to light the fire under their revolutionary fervor. On October 23rd, 1956, a huge demonstration was started by students who backed the Polish leader Gomulka against their head of state, Rakosi. Hundreds of thousands of people began to stream into the streets of Budapest, some pulling down the statue of Stalin, reminiscent of the Iraqi people pulling down Saddam Hussein's statue a few years ago. Others overwhelmed the local police stations, thereby arming themselves. The Kremlin by now was in an uproar. Kaganovich cried, the government is being overthrown. Zhukov proclaimed, it's not the same as Poland, troops must be sent. Molotov believed that Hungary is coming apart. Mikoyan, for his part, believed in caution, letting Imran Nash, who now rejoined the government, to try to defuse the situation. He said, what are we losing? If we bring in troops, we'll spoil things for ourselves. We should try political measures and only then send troops. So where was Khrushchev on the issue? Well, on both sides, of course. He felt that Mikoyan was correct, but he also saw the other side of the coin which was that the situation had grown very dangerous for the whole of the Soviet bloc nations, as well as for his own personal position. It is very likely that the others in the Presidium knew that Khrushchev's position here was tenuous, and that if they saw an opening to destroy him, they would at any moment. Nikita, for his part, also must have seen that he had to tread a little cautiously, but not too carefully, lest he be thought of as weak. Erno Gero had by now become the leader of Hungary, but he was a weak and impetuous man. He was no leader, and he was disliked by many within the Hungarian Communist Party. Many have said that had Naj or Janos Kadar been given the leadership of the Hungarian government at that moment, it is likely that the revolution they never have taken place, but alas, that was not the case. By October 24th, Imran Naj had taken the position as prime minister again and tried to appeal to the crowds, but it was too little, too late. Soviet army tanks and troops had already entered Budapest and were confronted by, mar- by mobs armed with, of all things, and very ironically, Molotov cocktails. And guns taken from the police stations. The situation was increasingly tense with no end in sight. The presidium had by now given up on Hungary. Zhukov said, We should withdraw our troops from Budapest and from all of Hungary if that's demanded. There's a military political lesson for us in this. Fortseva added. We must search for other sorts of relations with the people's democracies. Khrushchev, for his part, said, There are two paths, a military path, one of occupation, and a peaceful path, the withdrawal of troops, negotiations. As Taubman puts it, Incredible as it looks in retrospect, the Soviet leadership had opted to acquiesce in the loss of Hungary. But events on October 30th changed everything. Hundreds of people were shot during a protest in Budapest, and Imran Nagy had determined that he needed to do something radical in order to regain control of the situation. What he chose forced the Kremlin leader's hand. Nagy declared that Hungary must leave the Warsaw Pact and demanded that all Soviet troops leave Hungary immediately the Kremlin leaders were now in between a rock and a hard place. If they left Hungary, the revolution would spread to the rest of Eastern Europe and all hell would break loose. As Khrushchev told Tito, What is there left for us to do? If we let things take their course, the West would say we're either stupid or weak. And that's one and the same thing. We cannot possibly permit it either as communists or internationalists, or as the Soviet state. We would have capitalists on the frontier of the Soviet Union. The Chinese had at first urged caution, but then Mao sent a message through his ambassador of Moscow, Liao Shaoki, which reversed his stance and advised military intervention. The path was now clear. As Khrushchev told the Presidium on October 31st, 1956, We must not pull troops out of Budapest. We must take the initiative and restore order in Hungary. If we leave Hungary, that will encourage the Americans, English and French, the imperialists. They will perceive it as weakness and go on the offensive. Our party won't understand our behavior. To Egypt... They will add Hungary. We have no other choice. What Khrushchev was talking about with Egypt was the Suez Canal crisis, which saw the British and French landing in Egypt to take control of the canal on the same day that the Hungarian crisis was at its peak. The world seemed to be on the precipice of World War III, and the Kremlin leaders knew it. They had to choose between Egypt and Hungary. They chose to quash the revolution and the Soviet bloc state. Mikoyan was distraught and pleaded with Khrushchev to give the Hungarian leadership just a few more days to quell the revolution. He failed when Janos Kadar, who was by now in the Soviet Union, called on the Red Army to crush the rebellion. Mikoyan shouted, If blood is shed, I don't know what I'll do with myself. Feeling that his friend was threatening suicide, Khrushchev said to him, That would be the height of stupidity, Anastas. You're a reasonable person. Think it over. Take all the factors into account, and you'll see we've made the right decision. Even if there is bloodshed, it will spare us bloodshed later on. Think it over, and you'll understand. Khrushchev decided that members of the presidium needed to tell others within the Soviet bloc nations what their decision was. Nikita and Malenkov went to Yugoslavia to meet with Mikunovic, the ambassador for Tito and Brioni, on November 1st. The next day, Soviet Red Army troops rolled into Budapest and the rest of Hungary and within two days crushed the revolution, taking some 20,000 Hungarian lives with them. Looking back at Stalin's concerns that the men he was leaving behind were incapable of running his country was coming true. Their behavior during this crisis showed how unable they were at making decisive decisions. While we now know of many of Stalin's decisions were mistakes, he had no problem making them. Khrushchev and the rest of the Presidium members were good at vacillating and not much else. This was to be shown time and time again until the end of the Soviet Union in 1991. Join me next time when I recount the power struggle that ensued following the Hungarian Revolution with Khrushchev standing alone at the top of the USSR. From here I want to make a little correction. Uh, I was admonished by one of my listeners, I want to thank you, uh, from Facebook, who said that I mispronounced uh, famous author uh, Maxim Gorky's name, as his son's name is Maxim, and as I pronounced it, Maxim Gorky. So it's Maxim, and I apologize, and I stand corrected. Well, I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Ask you for a favor. Please help me out by rating the podcast on iTunes so I can move up the history podcast list. Which gets me a lot more listeners. Now, also, don't forget to join us, as I mentioned, on our Facebook, uh, you know, little fan club uh, at the Russian Rulers History Podcast. You just ask to join, and we'll let you in. We've got well over three hundred members now, and that's where you can ask a question, make a suggestion, or leave a comment. And so, as always, досвидания и спасибо большое.